Hello, everybody. Welcome to Health Chatter and our exciting and different show today on gadgets and devices. Most of you who would think that you would you would tune into a show on health wouldn't necessarily think about, oh, I'm going to listen to a show on gadgets. But there are a lot of them out there in the in the health arena. And we're going to be talking about a lot of them today with our, our great guests who we'll introduce in a few moments. Uh, first, is to get the show running here, I'd like to recognize our crew. They are really second to none. First, we have two of our researchers, uh, Aaron Collins and Maddie Levine-Wolf, who provide us some really good background information and some, some talking points that Clarence and I use when we have guests. Or even when we don't have guests, um, it's good to have some updated information on, on what's going on out there. So thank you to Aaron and Maddie for that great information. Then our production manager is uh, Matthew Campbell. Without him, all the logistics, as you can imagine, the audio for sure um, would not happen. And so thank you for his his expertise. And then the best of all is is Clarence, my uh, my great colleague. Who, um, man, I, I keep saying that you know it, it goes back a long ways, Clarence, and uh, it gets better better every day. So Clarence and I co-host this show. We have we we bring in two sides to the equation. One is the really the health side, and the other is the um, community side, and we try to make this an a um, an open conversation about all the issues re related to health. And today is about gadgets. And we have great guests with us today. We have um, Dr. LaPrincess Brewer from the uh, from Mayo Clinic, who has been, boy, <laughs> you we, we go back a ways too. I remember when, when you introduced a simple little app at a um, American Heart Association meeting. Wow, I don't know how long ago that was. But um, La Prince is a, is a uh, cardiologist, assistant professor of medicine at, um, at Mayo Clinic. Uh, special interest is in cardiovascular health, health disparities, community-based prevention, women's heart health, and public health. Um, she has done countless presentations across across the country um, that really, I think, centered um, at least initially, and has now broadened around a, um, a concept that she created called Faith, uh, fostering African American improvement in in total health. That um, she could probably tell us more about than than I can. It's been a pleasure to be part of that that board. Whoa, these years, uh, and and Clarence is on that board as well. Um, she's a great cardiologist and a true colleague. And then uh, Stuart Grande is from uh, the University of Minnesota. He heads up the Public Health Administration and Policy program in the School of Public Health there. Medical sociologist, which is always a great field whenever you're talking about just about any issue related to, to health, there's always a sociological aspect to it all, right? Any, I could pick anything 
and you know we could probably have Stuart on for that sh that particular show. Uh, adjunct, he was an adjunct lecturer and research associate at Dartmouth Institute of Health Policy and Clinical Practice for a, a few years back. Many publications in this area is great podcaster, wonderful information, and uh, it's great great to have you. Interesting enough, Stan, you you're the one who introduced Dr. Brewer to me. And really? Yeah. Yeah. You, you, I you forgot that. You, yeah. you forgot wow. that. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So I mean, so this is kind of like an old old home crew. Uh, what we've done, and uh, you know, all of us have been on have been involved with the Faith Project, and it has really, I, I think that it's really going to uh, be interesting to people to see the 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 results of it, and what happens when you talk about the the medical perspective and the community perspective and how bringing those those two together can really create some huge dynamics around uh, uh, making a, a, a community healthier. I do want to say this. It has been wonderful. Uh, uh, listeners, you probably wonder why we we, we take the time to uh, to go through this long introduction, especially when it comes to our students. Uh, it's because both Stan and I uh, really need them. Uh, they really, <laughs> Absolutely. they really bring some some great uh, the great information, but also they bring a different perspective, and I think that that's important in terms of health chatter. All right, so thanks for everybody for being here and being with us, and and you the the listening audience. So all right, gadgets and devices. So let let me give you a little bit of a, a handle on on what's going on out there. Um, I could. I could share with you some of the gadgets that I have, and I could I could talk about them, and a, and a couple of them will be near and dear to La Princess's uh, field for sure. But um, there are more right now. This is where our researchers come in. There are more than ninety thousand new digital health apps that were added to app stores in the year twenty twenty. That think about that. That's that's amazing. The COVID-19 pandemic helped increase the amount of apps, as you can imagine, because people need to, to do more uh, telehealth-oriented things. Globally, this one blew me away, globally more than 350,000 health apps are available from various app stores, which I, you know, I thought, hundred thousand was a lot, but you know, three hundred fifty thousand—that's—that's an enormous amount. Okay, um, there are other things in the gadget device arena. So there are apps. There are the devices such as health trackers. Okay, there are watches. There are Bluetooth-enabled devices such as blood pressure cuffs and electrocardiogram devices, which we'll talk about a little bit more. Uh, so all these things are out there and available. So today, what we're going to talk about are these devices, how they're used, the life, the life cycle of some of these devices, etc. So let's start, let's start out with our, our sociologists who can kind of put it in a broad perspective here. Stuart, give us, give us your sense of all this stuff. 
Yeah, that's a great question. I love that. That leaves all kinds of manner of exploration to have. There um, you go. Good for Yeah, where are we? Yeah, <laughs> where are we at this point? So as you Stan, as you as you mentioned, there are incredible amounts of these things being created because the business of apps is driving these things. Uh, it's not so much the health of people that's driving them and the interest in improving population health that's driving these things. It is marketing, it is money, it is people wanting to sell these things and get out there and do do good. So the, the bigger question that I would like to pose from, from a sociological perspective is how, how are these things actually being derived? Are they derived by theory? Are they derived by want desire to improve the health of populations? Um, and are they having the intended effect? And those are research questions really. Uh, and we are still very, very early in this process. And with COVID, as you mentioned, um, the number of publications that have reported observational studies of these apps and other gadgets and internet technology um, has skyrocketed. People have been sitting at home and being able to collect these data on their own. And it's, it's been incredible to see uh, but the question remains, are they having the intended effect? And I would then ask a broader question, what are these digital devices doing actually to health behavior? Are they, are they changing the way uh, we behave? And is this behavior change good? Uh, is it healthy or, 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 is it, or is it something else? And I'm thrilled to have the princess here because the the impact for and I do argue in much of my work for the value of this work in medicine, uh, but it's in it, I think there's incredible um, there's incredible diligence and intentionality that needs to be exposed here and 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 without that perspective, the what effect are we having? Um, question being asked, I think we can, we run the risk of doing some harm. Yeah. The princess, because I got some good, good angles on this one for you too. So thank you so much, um, Stuart. I really, really loved your comments about um, you know, who are these devices and, and apps being developed and yes, of course, we want to know if they work, but um, who are we actually prioritizing or, or targeting with these? Um, and you bring about, you know, indirectly the concern about widening the, the digital divide by, um, you know, having certain devices and, you know, internet capabilities and other technologies available for certain um, parts of society or the more advantage while leaving those that are disadvantaged and dis disenfranchised behind. And that also brings in the point of digital literacy and making sure that all populations um, are able and understand how to use these different devices. And in particular, in my case, um, to better their health. So one other thing I, I really, um, it really struck with me was that you mentioned, you know, the individuals and populations. And with our work and at the heart of everything we do uh, are people and populations. And we are intentional in that we want to develop 
um, technologies, whether it's an app or a device that um, is actually going to uh, meet the needs of a certain population. And with our work, we bring in individuals to help guide us on what they would like out of the out of the app or or whatever it is. So with our faith app, as Stan mentioned, you know I'm the co-director of the faith program, and faith stands for fostering African American improvement in total health, and we integrate uh, digital health and M health technology into our interventions to promote heart health, and the approach that we use. Um, is uh, community-based participatory research. And again, at the heart of that is the people. So they help drive everything we do. And in our uh, work, our participants said that they actually wanted mobile technology integrated into our program as an alternative to face-to-face -face programming. So they were innovative well before the pandemic and this rapid digital transformation. So we said, okay, you want digital technology, you want mHealth, you're going to help us design it. So we held focus groups or listening sessions or discuss, discussion sessions with community members, particularly African-Americans within the Black church or the faith community, to help us design an app. And this would allow them to have more accessible information on heart health, um, social networking, on the app and also tracking. Um, Stan had mentioned kind of the, the tracking devices as well. And through this process, our community members felt listened to, um, they felt that they were valued and that their needs and preferences were integrated into the research process. And I, I say all this because this helped um, when we actually launched our trial for the community at large to be more accepting of research as well as our intervention because it was community vetted. And I'll just say one more thing um, that I really uh, liked about Stuart's comments was the theory. Um, so I'm also a, a scientist and um, I bring this up during our CSE, our community steering committee uh, meetings. We have to understand why these devices work or not. And typically they have to have some sort of theoretical basis. Why do you think this will work? You're gonna invest millions of dollars into this. What theory do you have behind why, how this will change health behaviors? Because otherwise I think we're just chasing our tails if we don't have these theoretical or conceptual frameworks to explain why we think these will work. And then when we test it out in studies, we then can go back and say, this is why it worked, right? So, um, yeah, thank you so much for uh, allowing me to be here today. So I, I thank both of you for, for those comments. Stuart, you talked about money. Uh, Dr. LaPrincess, you talked about access. And I, I, the question that I have as a community member is this. Are we creating more problems for a division between those who have and those who don't have as a result of this technology? I mean, is it, is it, going, to, is it going to make our health worse? I mean... I mean, we, we think that technology is supposed to make things better, but the way it's being applied, money and access, uh, is it creating more problems for us than we thought? Let me, the Prince, is it okay if I dive in first? Uh, uh, really important point. Uh, I think 
to uh, the princess's argument, the importance of building these tools with community for community is essential. And it's amazing to me how few tools out there look and feel like the communities they're used in. And Clarence, we've talked at length about the challenges of current tools being used. Um, I work in a space called shared decision-making where I'm trying to create tools that bring clinicians and providers, clinicians and patients together to have more honest and intentional conversations uh, to improve uh, care outcomes. And I think there are a lot of tools that can be beneficial for that. What we see in those spaces, as well as the digital health tools, those things are not built to look like community members and to address the needs of communities. They are built to address the needs of the dominant culture. They happen to be white and male. Uh, they live in the suburbs. They have a certain income level. They have certain access to certain specific things. And that's how they're derived. And you open them up, you look at the, the images they provide and the, the color schemes used, the language used, the imagery, all of that stuff doesn't align with many populations who need these tools the most. And so to hear about the princess's work is awesome. It's incredible. And that's and the challenge of doing it right uh, is really what your question is about, Clarence. And I think, yes, access is absolutely an issue. But buy-in, once, once people recognize the value of the tool, buy-in, they'll make way, they'll make an effort to, to get the tools and get access to it. Uh, I, I would like to point out that the Pew, to our listeners, if you're interested in seeing tons of data on this, uh, the Pew Internet Surveys, which come out every, I don't know, maybe three or four years, get into very deep detail around who uses smartphones and how often and who has smartphones versus cell phones. And it's incredible to see the distribution in under, uh, sorry, in uh, minoritized groups, racialized groups, as well as developing countries where these tools are essential and are being used, for example, in India and Sub-Saharan Africa to have incredible impact. So Again, building the tools with the right population is critical. So here's here's a couple of questions that have been bugging me. It's like, who's good at using these devices? Are the you know when we talk about populations, you know we we've talked about certain populations, but let's talk about age as far as as population groups are concerned. Let's be frank. Do the elderly use these these devices do they understand these devices um do they maintain their use if they even get involved with them at all what do any have any experience with age differences and use of gadgets and devices so, you know, I would like to, to say, you know, uh, I don't want to stereotype um, our young at heart is, is what I, I call them, um, <laughs> our, our, our elders. Um, but I would say that there is data out there that, you know, the older population are more likely to be late adopters of, you know, these technologies and are more likely to stick to somewhat of the, the basics, you know, just you know, I got my cell phone, I got my smartphone, I don't need all of these other 
gadgets. Um, and But I do feel that we should help to enable them to use these devices as well. Um, and, and through that, I feel like we need uh, navigators to help them understand um, you know, the different features of, of certain technologies, because I, I wouldn't want them to be, you know, left behind either. And I think you're also getting at um, the term, you know, digital health literacy or, and, and how are you able to use um, these devices and technologies um, for the intended, you know, use or, or outcome. And um, digital health literacy and digital lit literacy programs are definitely needed not only for the, the aging population, but also for um, racial and ethnic minority groups as well. How effective is technology in terms of improving health? Uh, I mean, is there, is there some, some data, some, you know, I mean, so we got it. So we got it. We got technology. We got, we got 300,000 uh, apps. And so what? You know, I mean, so is it has there been any data to say that this is a, a more effective way or is this just the latest fad? So there's actually tons of data, you know, showing the effectiveness of um, mHealth or mobile health apps, um, as well as other mobile devices in improving overall um, health um, that spans for a number of disciplines uh, within, particularly within cardiovascular disease, there's uh, cancer prevention. Um, so the term technology is very, very broad, but I know today we're you know, particularly focusing on um, mHealth and apps. And uh, I think I kind of plugged that question because now I get to talk about our work. Um, <laughs> so, um, with our work with Faith, uh, we developed and co-designed um, a, a digital smartphone app called the Faith app that has uh, a number of features that has an overall goal of promoting heart health within the African-American faith community. And as I mentioned previously, we used a uh, participatory design process where we brought in community members um, are somewhat uh, user using user-centered design principles um, because they were the potential end users, correct? You know, of this app, we wanted them to help us to develop it. And um, we used focus groups, a series um, where we had them, you know, first of all, just give us their preferences on their own use of apps. Like, what do you like to see in apps? Like, what don't you like in apps? And we made sure to steer away from those things. And then we asked, how do you want that to be delivered? Like, do you want text? Do you want videos? Do you want text messages? Um, what would be best for you to stay engaged with this? Um, so our participants said that they would love videos. And they specifically said, we want health professionals, people that we trust that we know that this information is reliable and accurate. Um, and they also said that they wanted a means to stay connected with one another on the app. So some sort of networking. So we decided to do a um, social networking um, sharing board on, on our app to allow our community members to share their successes and challenges with maintaining a healthy lifestyle. Finally, they said, okay, I have a hard time keeping track of things. I think it'll be great to have tracking on the app where I can track my diet 
and you know my physical activity and to be able to see my progress over time. And so then we we synthesize all of this information um, amongst our multidisciplinary research team and also with our community members uh, from our community steering committee, including Stan and Clarence. And then we went back to the community once we you know, did this prototype and said, what do you think? Please tell us what you don't like. It will not hurt my feelings. Um, we wanna make sure that this is something that you would be proud of in your community, that you want this released to your community. So, and this was something that our app developers were not used to. They're, they're used to people just saying, this is what we want. Here's the sheet, here's the, the list must haves, um, make it. And then they give it to you by date. We had, this is a new paradigm for our app developers. They weren't used to community members telling them how to design and what they didn't like and kind of this iterative process you know, developing the app. So it was rigorously designed um, through our uh, focus groups and going back to get their approval. And then we tested it out in a pilot study as well as a randomized control trial. And we received funding from the National Institutes of Health and the American Heart Association to conduct this trial among uh, 16 churches throughout uh, the Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Rochester area, um, African-American churches predominantly. And um, we found that participants that used our app actually had improvements in their heart health. And we calculated um, a, a score called the Life Simple 7 score. It's now been updated to the Life Essential 8. Um, and our participants had a nearly two-point increase in this um, score. And you may say, oh, two points, what's that? But two points is equated, well, I'll, I'll go back. One point is equated with an 11 to 19% reduction in all-cause or cardiovascular disease mortality or death. So you just going up one point can help reduce your risk of dying from heart disease. So our participants had an increase in two points, you know, just from using this. And when we delve deeper into the components of that score, participants had improvements in their diet and physical activity. And you know, those are two health behaviors that are extremely hard to change. So, and that was over a six month period. So we helped maintain, you know, that, um, uh, those behaviors, even after they weren't using the app every day. So uh, yeah, I, I'd love so, to thank you for allowing me that time to share the results of that. So, that, so here, here's a little bit of a, of a dichotomy in, in, in dealing with gadgets and, and devices. And I'd like you all to, to think about this and, and re respond. Prevention versus disease management. Now I'm gonna go out on the limb and say this, that if you are diagnosed with say diabetes, okay? And you know, that, that, that's, that's kind of a, a shock right there. But then anything that can help you with the disease management of it, I believe patients are more engaged with, okay? Versus truly disease managing that that disease. Now on the other side is just prevention. Get you to walk, 
or get you to eat right, or you know, monitor this or monitor that. Um, for instance, here I could show you. Yeah, not everybody in the audience can see this, but so here's a Bluetooth-enabled blood pressure cuff right here. Okay, you know, for those of us who have been around the block a few times, this is pretty new technology when you really think about it. Okay, and it's a its ability to communicate with healthcare providers. So I need some comments on the pre, true prevention side of health vis-a-vis -vis the disease management side of health. And I wanted to just uh, comment really quickly on um, the, the blood pressure monitoring, um, which is uh, typically used when a patient's been diagnosed with hypertension, uh, which is a uh, driving major cardiovascular risk factor for heart disease. So there was a recent study actually released this week um, within JAMA Internal Medicine comparing um, an app-enhanced uh, wireless blood pressure cuff versus just our standard blood pressure cuffs. And they didn't find a difference actually in, in patients monitoring or any improvements really in, in outcomes. However, um, I want to emphasize, and you kind of hinted at it, Stan, it takes more than just giving someone a device and just, you know, saying, hey, you know, just manage your own blood pressure. It takes support, you know, from the provider. Um, it takes, you know, motivation from the, the patient and also like the healthcare team and also family and community, right? Uh, to help you, you know, manage your disease, whether it's hypertension, uh, cancer, diabetes, or any other uh, chronic disease. So um, another uh, spinoff of our work is a, a hypertension management, self-management program that we're doing in partnership with local um, federally qualified health centers uh, in uh, the Twin Cities area. And the secret ingredient for us was also having a community health worker involved um, that also had access to our app and use that as an educational tool with patients to help them manage their own blood pressure. So I would say it takes more than just giving someone a device. It takes, you know, support and, you know, others to help enable, you know, or, or increase the patients or individuals self-efficacy to manage their own, you know, disease as well. I want to ask a question. Does the patient feel more comfortable when they have a device that they can readily go to? Uh, I think it's, you know, a lot of times when, when people are, when people have health issues, they're, they're, they, they really get concerned, a lot of concerns. Does the, does the, the, having the devices, again, I don't know what the studies would show, but does that assure them more uh, or to in, enhance their health more. I, I just don't know. I just, as a community member, I just, uh, I'm, I'm hoping I'm making sense. But yeah, yeah but, I would say it depends, right? You know, going back okay. to Stuart's comments, you know, some of these devices are not made with um, or developed, designed, you know, with the uh, user's sociocultural environment uh, in mind at all. Um, so again, going back to if we give someone a device, they have no idea how to use it, <laughs> then they aren't going to feel like it's going to, you know, help, um, you know, enhance their health or uh, improve their uh, health outcomes. But if, you know, a device is developed with them in mind um, and has supports integrated in, 
you know, such as reminders or, you know, whatever they need to help support them um, in managing, you know, whether it's a, you know, chronic disease or just, you know, health behaviors, um, it, it may not be um, sustaining or useful for them. So I think we need to have these things in mind when we're designing them. Is it even, you know, useful for how, you, what's the utility, you know, of this device for this particular group? So Stuart, here, here's a, here's a, question that that's been bugging me it's what i call the listening factor by having all of these devices you know i call them dick tracy devices i you know dick tracy watches um are we your age then yeah right right that's true um look it up everybody um are we causing us to not listen to our bodies in our own health ourselves? Mm. Are we becoming dependent on these devices to you know, tell us how many hours we slept? Really? Come on, okay? Or, you know, your, your blood, your, your heart rate is da, 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 da. Or are we getting to the point where we aren't listening to ourselves? This is a this has been an issue um, for a really long time, and when we step back a little bit from the M Health digital health space and we look at technology broadly or tools broadly and what those what the effects of in, including those tools in our daily lives has, we can see some really deleterious effects. So we can see some really downstream issues like anxiety, depression, um, fear, and uh, resentment, and all these other things that go along. We can look at, for example, young people and their use of social media, and we can see that images are modified, and there's a lot of body image challenge going on in the social media space, and people aren't connected. So they're not, they are connected digitally, but they're not connected physically or emotionally. There's this, there's this isolated piece and you, 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 or isolating piece that the enhanced use of these tools leads to or contributes to. You asked about listening and I, I like that term because um, it harkens back to me when I think about the, the advent of new technologies in our space and cardiology and and um, surgery in general, more broadly, has been the epicenter of these new technologies and how cool they are. Um, one of the most important tools, I think, for a cardiologist or a clinician overall is the stethoscope, the thing that you that designates a clinician from all other uh, blue, pink, other whatever garments they're wearing in the, the hospital. You, wear, you have a stethoscope, you're serious. The stethoscope is the first step to disconnecting the patient from the, the clinician. You're no longer touching the patient. The hand is not on the patient. You're not mm -hmm. feeling, you're not checking. There's a, there's a device that's putting distance and we are using more and more devices to continually distance ourselves from um, the clinician. And I think in many ways, these tools can be used in that way. And there's this idea 
in this space called the digital digitalized self. And we aren't just a number. We are ebbs and flows and, and clinicians know this because this is how they're trained. But for the general public, they think that if I, if I don't feel well, or if I have a temperature now, I need to check it again in 10 minutes and I need to make sure that I'm within a certain range. People who have uh, A1C check, so their blood sugar check, they check it at certain intervals and it's not a point specific test. It's a, it's a mean test and you check it over time to see whether or not you're quote unquote in control or not. But the general public isn't trained to view those, those data in that way. They don't look at heart rates over time. They don't look at sleep patterns over time. They don't look Blood at pressure there. Yeah. It's not, it's right now. Oh no. And it's, that's not, that's not how the tools are designed. And I think Stan, your point is at, right on the mark. I mean, if we are so concerned with our moment to moment fluctuations, we will drive ourselves batty. And you can see that happening actually. Right in in the in the health fitness space you know when you know and, and la princess you know this you know as a as a physician you know the white coat effect on on blood pressure okay so you could take you know and somebody can have their blood pressure taken you know the minute they walk into a a, um, a clinic and it could be you know relatively sky high okay and you know a, a good physician will say not a problem. We'll take it in a few minutes after things calm down, et cetera, et cetera. And lo and behold, <laughs> things go down. So Stuart, to your point, you know, we're, we ebb and flow as human, as human beings. It's not always a point in time. Oh my God. Okay. Um, all right. Let me, let me tell you about a new one that's hitting the scene. Okay, in the Bluetooth enabled um, arena, we said we mentioned blood blood pressure cups as one, and then um, another hearing aids. So I'll, I'll I'll give you a personal story. Okay, I just got hearing aids last week. Oh my God, are they sophisticated little critters? Okay, I mean, you know, depending upon the type you get and all this other kind of stuff, Bluetooth enabled. You know, you, you can adjust the volume, you know, on your phone. You can adjust the volume if you're in a restaurant. You can adjust the volume, you know, and, and whatever. All this stuff. Now, it, it, it lends itself to this idea of, again, who can use these devices and use them well, okay, and appropriately. Okay, and with confidence. Okay, these are these are things that that we're going to be um, addressing. Okay, next thing I want all of you to, to think about are um, charting. Okay, so like, all right, so I guess I call that I don't know if it's a gadget, but I would call it a device or a communication vehicle. My God, if I get my blood taken to get things measured. I can get the results on my chart, right? You know, like within a half an hour, probably before my physician even sees it, okay? Access to information and appropriate communication. Talk to me about this. Yeah, so this was, I definitely wanted to discuss this as well. And, and there's this uh, term called like the, the patient tech, Relate in clinician relationship, 
patient tech clinician relationship and which goes beyond kind of the, the traditional um, patient provider relationship. And we've been kind of thrown into this, again, rapid digitalization with, with telehealth, as well as use of EHR, um, electronic health records. And I'm sure you all have been to, you know, your doctor, first thing they do is open a computer and they're looking at the screen and asking you questions and not necessarily looking at you directly face-to-face, eye-to-eye to get this information to help develop the, the relationship. And this is something that I grapple with all the time, just having to use, you know, the EHR. Yes, it's an awesome tool, um, you know, that helps us to, you know, organize lots and lots of information um, and documents, but it does at, at some point um, and sometimes hinder you know, the, the development of that relationship uh, with, with patients. And then um, I'm glad you also brought up um, the patient portals uh, as well. Um, so as a health equity researcher, I must mention that underserved populations, racial, particularly racial and ethnic minority groups, um, are less likely to use these patient portals. Yes, it's, it's easy access to to information, but we have to remember that not everyone, you know, has you know access to these or even knows how to use them. And there's studies showing that African Americans, in particular, are less likely to um, receive referrals or information about patient portals from their physicians. So that is a form of digital inequities, digital divide, because there's so much potential in having that easy access, like you said, staying to your labs, your blood pressures, all of these studies that we order as clinicians, um, for them to be able to have that information at their fingertips. Um, but some patients are not afforded that opportunity. And I, if I can take a second to double down on that as well, this is a, a key feature of the failure of the system to meet the needs of patients who have some of the greatest needs. And I'm not saying that they are sicker. I am arguing that they come from spaces that need more attention and they're not getting the right attention. And clinicians are, because of the system, not paying attention to the, what those needs are. And so tools need to be developed that address what we call social care concerns as opposed to healthcare concerns. Uh, if you look at the European model, especially in the UK, and of course they, they've got their own issues, but the social care and healthcare connection are integrated in their system. Ours are disparate, they're separate. Public health and healthcare are two separate universes. And so we are dependent on clinicians like La Princess to go out and do this work to do incredible work to make those connections because the system itself isn't doing it. And the, the, the reality is patients who, are, um, who don't look like the physicians are not treated the same way. And there has to be efforts put in place to make sure from a system point of view that that doesn't continue because clearly relying on the system and clinicians by themselves isn't enough. So let me ask this question. Um, in the old days, Stan and I, uh, um, there was a lot of paperwork. And so everybody didn't get to see my information. 
Uh, but now everybody can see everything about me. And uh, that's a concern. Um, what do you think about that? Privacy. Well, so the, the tools that are built now, uh, Clarence, are incredibly, it, the ones built with intention and the ones that are built with clinical applications have very good firewalls. Um, in my work, when we've spent time with patients, uh, or I shouldn't say, let me refer, let me, sorry. When I've spent time in the community, people who are potentially patients, uh, fear of data being taken or used is they're more interested in getting the right information to the right people. They're, they're like, who's going to take, what, who am I? Who, what is it about me that they need to take? I just want the right people getting the right information and I want them giving it to me. Um, these, the people I'm, I'm, I'm talking about have tended to be housing insecure, homeless, um, and from rural areas. But I will say among the homeless that I've spent time with, the fear of data being misused to keep them out of the system is extremely high. Um, and so it's a, as part of a tool development strategy, we have to build in and, and show and demonstrate how the tool protects that information. Who's going to use it, who has access to it, and how are they going to use it? Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks so much for that question, Clarence. I just wanted to bring up really quickly the element of um, medical mistrust, um, which is, you know, a, a factor that we need to um, discuss in the um, context of racial and ethnic minority groups, particularly African-Americans, um, about the data and privacy concerns. <clears throat> you know, this kind of dates back and stems from, you know, some historical atrocities, uh, including, you know, the Tuskegee syphilis study, and one that, you know, really touched my heart because I trained at Johns Hopkins, the Henrietta Lacks uh, cell line, and use of people's, you know, um, and medical information for the gain of the system, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, so that that is also, you know, a, a, a concern that we we must uh, keep at the forefront, and that this is not, you know, outlandish. They have a reason to mistrust our use of this, you know, information because, um, you know, it's not been used to their benefit, but to somewhat of their detriment. So. Um you bring up a really, really important point about trust. And for our listening audience, you have to ask yourself, for yourself, for your loved ones, your friends, your colleagues, who do you trust? Do you trust yourself first? Do you trust your Fitbit next? Do you trust your, your, your Bluetooth-enabled blood pressure cup? or your Bluetooth enabled hearing aids? Do you trust, and I'll go out on, on a limb saying, do you trust your defibrillator that's been implanted in you as a device? Okay. Do you trust your healthcare provider? Where, where is the, the pyramid of trust for each and every one of us? It also is in our community. So for, there are, do you trust, trusted elders in your community, for for instance. Where does the trust come from and where do you get it from? And we are morphing as human beings into trusting more and more um, 
gadgets and devices. Last comments, LaPrentice. Yeah, so again, thank you so much for allowing me to be here today. Um, I really want us to recenter ourselves and focus on digital health equity for all populations and to always start with who's represented, you know, in this research or this device. And also just a few other things. How can I design these mHealth or digital tools um, to address barriers to health technology? And then what are my responsibilities in protecting the privacy of this data and returning this data back to communities for their benefit? And then how might this technology or app um, aggravate racism and sexism and other biases? We talked about you know, the elderly and, and aging populations. And then lastly, how can my research address societal um, injustices or how can this app help to advance digital Absolutely. health? And this was out of some Berkeley researchers that, and I use this guide, it's called the Digital Social Justice Guide. So thank you so mm. much for allowing me to be here. Wow, thank you. Stuart. Yeah, I, I wanna echo those comments as well and say how appreciative I am to be asked to sit and have a conversation like this. Uh, it's absolutely needed and more work is 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 needed in in this space i would end uh simply by again doubling down on the president's statements that this work has to be centered around who we're de designing these tools for and that if we are really intentional about making change promoting equity then we have to do the diligent work of partnering with community members to do that work um, this isn't done in an office, and it's certainly not done at predominantly white institutions on communities. It has to be done with communities for community benefit. And uh, that's often not the guiding, guiding principle. As we talked about at the top, a lot of these apps and other technologies are built with, um, with bottom lines in mind. But the truth of the matter is, if people are interested in seeing change, and especially impacting systematic racism, and um, institutional oppression that has been consistent for the last 200 plus years, these things have to be used and developed with intention. And that's what we need more of. And I'm, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to talk about this stuff and uh, really excited uh, to be able to have that conversation with La Princess this morning too. Thanks, thanks to all of you. Uh, the conversation will continue. We will, uh, we, like with all our guests, we reserve the right to, to call you back, you know, when more sophisticated gadgets and devices are created. Imagine that. Um, for our listening audience, thank you so much for listening to, to Health Chatter. We have upcoming shows on cancer screening, healthy aging, disability, climate, exercise, sleep apnea, homelessness, hearing loss, oral health, they're all in the queue. You can imagine we're never at a loss of, of great topics in the healthcare arena. So for all of you, keep health chatting away. <laughs>